every time you hit something complex, it's new, it's different. There is no playbook, there is no checklist. And really what you have to do is get all the right people involved in sort of sharing what they see, know, believe, understand, get them buying into the right way to, to move forward. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, the right way to move forward when it's complex is to try things. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a complexity expert and highly skilled process architect who's been a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 and government leaders tackling some of the biggest, gnarliest challenges. He's the one organizations call when they need to find traction in a landscape of unorganized, intractable complexity. Based out of the greater Toronto area, He's spoken near and far on a wide range of topics related to complexity, effective and efficient problem solving, and human dynamics and systems. Today, he's here to talk about his book, Cracking Complexity, which is a cutting edge, highly engaging step-by-step -step formula for cracking incredibly naughty and important challenges. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, co-founder of Syntegrity and Chief Architect behind the implementation of the Complexity Formula, David Benjamin. David, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really appreciate you being here. No problem. This is uh, going to be a great conversation. Absolutely, man. Your book is amazing. You guys need to go pick it up, Cracking Complexity, as you could tell by my copious tags. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Um, and I know you guys as data scientists will as well. Before we jump into the book, though, let's learn a little bit more about you. So, David, where did you grow up and what was it like there? I grew up in Toronto in sort of the northeast suburbs. It was quiet, safe, clean. You know, even Toronto during those days, a kid could hop on the subway, go downtown, hang out with their friends, come back. And, you know, parents wouldn't miss a beat in terms of worrying about them. So really nice childhood. Yeah, Toronto's a cool place, man. I really like it a lot right there on the on the lake and, and everything. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. So when you were, you know, cruising around on the subways, going in and out of the city as a younger youth, what did you imagine your future would be like? Frankly, you know, I don't remember giving it much thought. I always had a lot of confidence in the future. I've always been someone who sort of lets things come. My dad worked for IBM, so I think that was always sitting in my head that, you know, IBM might be in my future and computer science, because it was relatively new then. And my father, again, you know, was out pioneering work in that space, but 
you know, I knew I wouldn't be a basketball player or a hockey player, so <laughs> it would be something professional. And I just kind of let it emerge. And did you get a chance to eventually work with IBM through your consulting work that you've done or did that? Yeah. As a co-op student at the University of Waterloo, I did, uh, I think, three work terms at IBM. That's awesome. Yeah. So how different now? I was going to say later in my career, I spent another three years there as well. Yeah. So how different now is is life than what you imagined it would be like? It sounds to me that it might kind of be in line, but did you ever see yourself breaking out to start your own company or anything like that? No, I, I never would have thought of myself as an entrepreneur. And it was really, again, just something that came to me. I didn't seek out uh, the adventure of starting a business on my own, but somebody who I had worked with, he went and found the Stafford beer work and he found Syntegration, brought it to me. And I basically just dropped what I was doing and joined him as uh, we were starting it in 2002. And kind of what was the, uh, the path that led you to there? So what types of roles were you working in? What types of things were you doing that then eventually led to, to this being the thing that you chose to pursue? Yeah, I, I remember uh, an early role I had in probably one of my father's companies, somebody commenting on what a good systems thinker I was. And I had no idea what that meant. You know, it sounded like a compliment. So I said, thank you. But, you know, I say this to people sometimes, there is no sort of path that puts you on the career trajectory of complexity, let alone even facilitating, right? But you do, if you watch kids in their natural setting with, with friends and in programs, you see the ones who sort of sit and listen and kind of take over the conversation, not dominating it, but asking questions and drawing people out. And I think in the same way, there are kids who kind of look at the systems and, and the big patterns in life and sweat the details much less. Those are probably the ones who grow into system scientists and complexity scientists. So I guess I would say, you know, it was just, again, uh, being that kind of kid, having a father who had businesses and, and um, in fact, worked with Stafford Beer, who is the pioneer, as you read in the book, of a lot of the work we do. So it just kind of came together that way. So what does that mean to be a systems thinker? How do you interpret that? What, what does it mean? To me, it's um, it's a matter of sort of looking at the big picture, paying attention to the patterns, how they connect. You know, as as a, I, my early career, I was a programmer, right? And you're stuck on a piece of code, and you're dealing with a bug that's in front of you, and that's very, very micro and very, you know, in the moment. But as you sort of pull back the lens and you look at the larger system that you're building and start to see how all the pieces come together. And then how it's going to be used and where it's going to be used and, and so on. You start to see like more of a system view of what you're doing. So it's kind of a weak analogy, I guess, or maybe a little too literal. Yeah. But to me, it's really just more about seeing the whole, being a holistic thinker. And again, for me, uh, as I'll tell you as we get into this, it's about seeing patterns and how pieces come together and how problems kind of get solved when you, when you don't get stuck in the micro. Yeah, I like that. I like the definition a lot. It makes it really clear for me. So do you think like the systems thinking, is this a skill that anybody can cultivate that anybody can pick up or, you know, was it something that you're quote unquote born with? Like, how did you develop this systems thinking mindset? Was it just through work? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's always just been very natural. You know, try to chase it, trace it back to childhood. I think I had three older sisters, right? And just they were all older than me and going through life ahead of me. So sort of just watching 
how life works and learning it from others kind of sets you into that into that mindset of uh, observing the moving parts and, and how they connect. I think you can learn a lot of systems thinking tools and you can you can pick up some of the kind of patterns to look for and how to look for them. And I think it helps if you have an innate interest in sort of holism. But there are personality types, I think, that just get very mired in, in details. And it's much harder for them to kind of look up and, and see everything and how it all fits together. Yeah. Is there, is there a good book you might recommend to our audience about systems thinking if they wanted to, to exercise that, that muscle, so to speak? There's several good books. I mean, Stafford Beer was a very prodigious writer and he wrote a lot of books about systems thinking. He pioneered a lot of models that are in use, but again, you have to have the appetite for, you know, university textbook kind of mode of yeah. explaining things. So I, I read the good parts at the beginning and I didn't get all the way through all the detail in his books. And, and to me, that's, I, I read a lot and you kind of know when you've hit the point where you've been saturated with what you're going to get from a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, you know, as I, as I go through a lot of the systems thinking materials, I'm, I, I pretty much know what I'm going to get from the book and, and don't go all the way through cover to cover. Yeah. Right on. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. So let's, let's talk about now you touched on a little bit, but you know, let's, let's kind of get more in depth here about, you know, the path that led to your fascination with complexity. So we kind of touched on it there, but if you want to just reiterate that for us. Yeah. If I kind of reverse engineer how I ended up doing what I'm doing again, it was, um, I remember my father hosted Stafford beer at our house for his 65th birthday party or something like that. And I was a teenager. So I just remember seeing all these like long haired, crazy cyberneticians, you know, and scientists and having a great time drinking a lot. And I, I think that sort of lodged in my head and 15 years later, 13 years later, something like that, maybe 10, David Kamlos, my partner at Syntegrity co-founder, he, uh, he showed me what he had come across in terms of this methodology that Stafford Beer had, uh, had developed. And um, there was something about it that just appealed me, appealed to me right away as a, as a mathematician, there's, you know, efficient network models baked into to what Stafford Beer was doing. And um, it just made sense. It was, you kind of look at it and you say, yeah, that, that works. And in software, I had had, you know, several career instances where there was a lot of smoke and mirrors kind of selling and, and convincing going on and, you know, figuring it out after you've made a commitment to the client. This was just really well-engineered stuff that got at the core of really big um, challenges. So we didn't get into it as sort of this is complexity and we're going to solve complexity. It was just much more about helping large groups deal with, you know, large scale problem solving. And the uh, foundational premises all made a lot of sense. The model made a lot of sense. And as soon as we started doing it, I felt like I had been born, you know, into, into this uh, life. So break it down for us. What, what is the difference between simple, complicated and complex? Yeah. So simple and complicated challenges are deterministic. They're, you know, sort of the domain of science. They are completely solvable. They are solved. There's a checklist you can follow to solve them consistently. So for example, um, repairing a car would be a complicated challenge. And so the difference between simple and complicated, all those same characteristics, but when the challenge is complicated, you need to seek some expert help. 
in order to execute the solution, execute the checklist. So again, with that car example, you can't say it's simple because not just anyone can go fix your car. You need an expert. So categorically different from that are complex challenges, which are not solved. They have a lot of moving parts, a lot of hidden interdependencies, and there's just too much stimulus to know what the patterns are and how they're going to work until you've tried things and discerned what works. You know, only then can you know sort of how to make progress on something that's complex. So the domain of the expert, complicated. The domain of kind of figuring it out from scratch each time, that's complexity. What's your favorite example of a problem that on the surface looks like it it fits the description of complicated, but as you start to dig a little bit deeper, it turns out that it's actually complex. You know, it's funny because again, from a software background, I would have said 25 or 30 years ago that, you know, writing systems was a complicated challenge, building computer systems. But as you look at, you know, how big and, you know, central these systems became, to running big businesses, you realize that, well, it might be a, it is complicated to write software, to actually like successfully implement software and get it in use in a company well, right? And meeting user needs. That's definitely a complex challenge. So I think, you know, one of the traps we fall into is trying to believe that it's merely complicated to get an ERP system or any other kind of system working successfully in a company. It's, if anything's complex, you know, that is, and then on, on sort of the more mainstream side, I, I like to talk about how, you know, planning a wedding is complicated, having a happy marriage is complex, right? And that really helps people. Uh, yeah, okay, so I can execute the checklist of how to prepare for my wedding, but where's the checklist on how to navigate, you know, a marriage? Yeah, I like, I like that section of the book where you uh, break it down for like, you know, all these different types of problems and is it complex or is it complicated? It, it, I really, really enjoyed that part. So I'm, I'm curious though, how is the problem solving process different for a complicated versus a complex problem? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, just a matter when you're dealing with something complicated, you know, it's a matter of finding the expert who knows how to solve this. And so again, if you've got a piece of software and you need it configured in a particular way and you don't have that capability, you can go find an expert who does. Car breaks down, you go hire a mechanic, they'll get your car up and running again. So it's really sort of knowing who to engage and making a choice amongst one of often several experts that you can bring in to help you with it. But when you're dealing with something complex, the experts you know, may tell you they've solved this before. You know, we've, we've done talent management in many companies before we know how to do it, but they don't know your company and, and they don't know what changed since last year. And they don't know, you know, the particular demographics of your company. Every time you hit something complex, it's new, it's different. There is no playbook. There is no checklist. And really what you have to do is get all the right people involved in sort of sharing what they see, know, believe, understand, get them buying into the right way to to move forward. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, the right way to move forward when it's complex is to try things. It's not, you know, to be confident that everything like is figured out, we're just going to do this and we're going to get through this problem. It's no, no, like here's a few things we're going to try. We're going to watch them carefully. They work. We'll, we'll, you know, scale them up. They fail. We'll shut them down. It's that kind of approach. It's really interesting. I mean, I wonder if complexity does it 
like can one person view something as being complicated but then that same situation might be viewed as somebody else with maybe less of an understanding or less of a command or mastery of that subject as as complex and this reason this comes to mind is you know as a data scientist i'm pretty well versed in data science workflows right how to go from raw data to to decisions but i'm placing the situation out of work where i have to create a data strategy for this organization a massive organization and to me it's like okay well man i've got no clue what i'm doing so i'm just trying to like read up and and do a bunch of research and you know to me this making data differentiator for my organization is complex as hell for me um, but somebody who's done it before it might not be complex to them it might be complicated is that kind of how it works yeah well they might see it as complicated they and again a, a lot of times in order to sort of sell your goods right sell your services you got to have that confidence and belief and convey to the client you know we know what we're doing we've done it many times before don't worry you can trust us and and they'll interview people, they'll they'll get information, but ultimately, like if you're doing something like data strategy, what you're going to get back is their view of the right data strategy for your organization. And in fact, you know, human systems are like human bodies. They have sort of antibodies that fight off foreign substances, right? So when that when somebody else's data strategy lands inside an organization you know, the natural response is to try to fight it off as a, as a foreign entity in the body. And you've, I'm sure you've seen that, right? So instead, you know, as, as you get into the book, you start to see that really the key to dealing with complexity is to get people, get their fingerprints all over the solution, get their fingerprints all over the strategy. And I can't imagine a situation where doing data strategy is only complicated because Again, the, the market, the business you're in, the people who work there, you know, it's going to be different every time. And of course, sorry, I know I'm going on and on, but if you take the last year as a great example, right? Think about how much changed overnight, you know, beyond anyone's control and how many data strategies like stand unchanged as a result of what happened in the last year. You know, strategy has just been like, thrown out the window in so many different facets of life and business by what just happened. And that's the nature of complexity. Go, go find an expert who will tell you how to do, you know, work 2.0, which a lot of companies are struggling with. It hasn't been done before. It's got to be figured out. And it's got to be figured out by the people who are going to live with the strategy. Yeah. It just, it's, it's funny to me because we're talking about this global pandemic that we're going through. And there's like literally an example in your book of a company that was dealing with a pandemic situation, how they would respond to it. And I was like, what? I had to go, I had to flip back and look what year this book was published. Um, Cause it was just so, so striking. But yeah, this one thing that I really found interesting about this whole, you know, 10 step formula that you have that we're definitely going to get into uh, was how much that it involved people and getting people together. And I think that's only fitting that, you know, Marshall Goldsmith had written the, the forward, you know, the emotional intelligence master for, for this book. And it's, it's very, very fitting. So I want to, I want to toss this question, which you open chapter two with right back at you uh, so that the audience can get an understanding of how to create an effective approach, you know, when it comes time to face these complex challenges. So we talked about the situation where I'm in, you know, trying to create a data strategy where I've got no foreknowledge of what's going to work or what's not going to work. So how do we best deal with that? How do we best deal with something we've never dealt with before without knowing what's going to work and what's not going to work? Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, if I kind of break it down, you got, you got to start by getting a handle on what the problem is, right? And, and then articulating the problem in a way that everyone can kind of see the same problem in front of them. So there's a few, you know, steps that get at that. But ultimately, once you kind of frame the problem, you know, another concept we talk about is requisite variety, getting all the right people and right, you know, necessary and sufficient. That's why the word is requisite. But writing in terms of perspectives, experiences, you know, what they see, what their job function is inside the organization, outside the organization, partner organizations, get all those right people involved. And then, you know, get them like dealing with that problem. They all agree is the right problem, figuring out, you know, possible solutions. And because you're in the complex domain, what will always happen is you'll end up with some like very clear, like complicated things that need to get done. And if you've done it right, you know, one or more really important experiments to try because you got to kind of grope forward, see what works, you see what doesn't work, learn as you go, adapt as, as things develop. And that's the way you make progress. Yeah, a lot of a lot of experimentation, right? Putting putting some of that science into it. So before we jump into some parts of the complexity formula, I was hoping you could name a couple of the principles that you outline that lay the necessary foundation uh, for us to to leverage the complexity formula. Sure. You know, I think a really foundational thing is this law of requisite variety, which I mentioned, but just Again, to explain what that is, that comes from a guy named Roger Ashby. Sorry, Ross Ashby. I always say Roger Ashby Ashby because he was a DJ growing up. Um, Ross Ashby, who was a cybernetician, you know, which is the science of good management, just to greatly simplify that. And um, what he said is that only variety destroys variety, right? And it's a, it's a natural law. Like the only way to deal with something that's highly complex is to bring to bear a matching amount of variety in terms of the people who are dealing with it. And so that law of requisite variety is all about sort of thinking about the complexity that you're facing and really getting creative about the necessary people who need to get involved. And one one of the lenses into that is another kind of principle that we talk about, which we call SATDA, which is about sensing, absorbing, thinking, deciding, and acting, and all those functions that are involved in really getting a handle on a problem, sensing what the problem is, absorbing the implications, thinking about Uh, possible options, deciding on one, and then enacting your decision. Those are fragmented functions in any organization. And the reason that matters is as an individual human being, you know, you have sat dub baked into one nervous system. So, you know, the example we use, you walk into an office, you see a line on the desk, you are immediately able to sense, absorb, think, decide, and act. And so in the blink of an eye, you're running in the other direction, right? But if you take the line of the desk as a metaphor for challenges facing large organizations, right? The sensors are all over the place. They may or may not be the ones who, you know, pick up the stimulus of a threat or opportunity in the market. Then you got a different group of people who absorb the implications. You know, those might be data scientists who are looking for weak signals or strong signals. Others who think about options and, you know, weigh the cost benefit of different approaches. Then the deciders. And then finally, the actors. And as uh, most organizations function, there is no smooth, integrated, you know, way for those functions to to, um, work together and get to action fast. So it takes months and sometimes years to pick up a threat and get to the point where you're you're going down the path of uh, solving for it. 
So that's really key as you think about any complex challenge. And you put that with variety, it begins to really bring to life what it means to have the right variety of people to deal with big challenges. And then, you know, iteration, emergence, they're, they're, it's all part of this stack, you know, and if you, if you do it all right, you're going to make it through from a challenge to solutions every time, which is funny for me to say, because it makes it sound like solving for complexity is merely complicated. But in a way it is, right? There, there is a formula. That's interesting. Solving for complexity is, is just complicated. Just go through go the steps but they're they're hard steps right and i think mm-hmm. each step is each step might just be complex in its own right definitely going to dig into some of the steps but one thing i know that the data scientists the audience are really going to love is this uh eikw model yeah. so can you explain that to us um you know what is it and what should we know about it and you know you've worked with data scientists before so what should we as data scientists know about this I think you all, I, I think most people who work with data, you know, already at least intuitively understand this. It comes from that particular model. I think Russell Acoff and Wharton uh, spoke about it and really kind of refined the model. I, I don't think he originated the model, but it basically says, you know, there's this hierarchy that goes from data to information to knowledge to wisdom. And what Russell Acoff would say is that, you know, an ounce of information is worth a pound of data. And an ounce of knowledge is worth a pound of information. And an ounce of wisdom is worth a pound of knowledge, right? And that's, you know, forget the exact ratios, but that's the hierarchy. Hierarchy. You're trying to make your way up to wisdom. Um, and it takes a lot of data to, to get to, you know, some really solid information, a lot of information to get to solid knowledge and, and all the way up to wisdom. We inserted into that hierarchy the notion of shared understanding because I think that's missing. So you don't just get from knowledge to wisdom without getting, again, group wisdom means getting like a group of people who are like dealing with the data information and knowledge, coming to a shared understanding of what it all means so that they're ready, you know, to try things, learn and, and produce wisdom. Without shared understanding, you end up with, with people who are just looking at the same source materials. I mean, what better example than you know, state of the world right now in terms of uh, people able to look at the same data base, right, and come away with completely different interpretations on climate change, you know, through everything about uh, what's going on in the world. So again, without shared understanding, you don't get to wisdom. And I think that's really important for people who work in data to understand. And it's probably why a lot of people bang their heads against the wall is because it's so clean and clear to them all the way up to the point of knowledge. And yet it's really hard to get people rallying around that knowledge, you know, and behaving accordingly and in a coordinated way. How do we get to that shared understanding? Like what do we do to help facilitate that? It's a real struggle and people need time. Um, This is where sort of iteration comes in as an example. I like to give the example of I've got three daughters, right? I think anyone who's got kids has learned that if you kind of just tell them to do something, it, you're never, you're never going to say, if they don't think that's the right thing to do, you're not going to convince them in kind of one moment of telling them, no, 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 this is absolutely the right thing for you to do. But if you give them time, you know, to iterate through the conversation a few times, if you give them time to like pause and think and take it on for themselves and like find the win, right, where they can concede that that was the right thing to do, but, you know, and 
that's how people learn. That's how people change is they need, they need to actually let go of things before they can take new things on. So when you're talking about getting to shared understanding, it's not like, here's the data. Here's, it's clear. You got to get into conversations. You got to work your way through. You got to help people, you know, think it through. And you got to go in understanding that you are likely in some respect wrong in your interpretation of it. And, you know, really have two-way, a five-way, a 20-way conversation about like, what, what are we seeing here? Listening in ways that you don't normally listen, not thinking about what you're, you know, how you're going to convince them that you're right, but like really allowing for the fact that you might not be. Thank you very much for that. This can be, this can be something I'm going to run back a couple of times, let that sink in because this can be a lot of necessity for shared understanding for the journey that I'm about to, to be on at work. So I want to dig into a couple of parts of the complexity formula, but before we do that, maybe at a high level, super high level, if you can walk us through these 10 steps uh, and then we'll go deeper on, on a couple of them. Yeah. And I've given you some of them already, but basically, I mean, it starts from a place of humility for leaders who are going to like wade into this and do the formula. You got to recognize that you don't know what you don't know, that it's okay to ask for help in figuring something out. You know, there's this prevailing thought that I, I make the big bucks, so I should know. And I look bad if I don't know. Well, you got to let that go. You got to be humble about that and acknowledge that you're facing something that requires you to engage a whole bunch of people to help figure it out. That articulate what the problem is. That's crafting a really good question. Then use that as a lens into what's the requisite variety of people, as I was talking about before, and allow that to be a large group, 30, 40 people. You know, who are all the perspectives I need to help inform my answers on this challenge I'm facing? Get them all seeing the challenge and understanding it. It's funny, we published the book before the pandemic and, you know, for 18 years of our history, it was about then getting all those people together in one place. And you probably read that chapter with a smile on your face. But what we all learned since March of last year is that you can actually, you know, localize people, bring them together, assemble them really effectively over some of the video platforms that are in use now. So yeah, you get them together physically, virtually. And really, I think one of the really interesting and different steps in this process is that you don't tell them what to talk about. You've given them a question. Uh, there's so much prevailing wisdom about needing an agenda. Don't have a meeting without an agenda. Well, we say the opposite. We say, don't have an agenda as you come in. What You've got this variety of people. You've chosen them because they know things you don't know. So the last thing you want to do is tell them how to talk about the question you've given them. So give them time and space to work together to identify the topics they need to cover. And then it's about iterating through those topics three times specifically, um, because the data says that a fourth time would uh, be diminishing returns and two times isn't enough. So three times. And the whole thing is, is with this kind of mindset that the right things are going to emerge if we approach this the right way. It's not believing that you know what the right answer is, but it is believing that if, if we do this right, engage the right people, iterate together through this, you know, make our way to answers, the right answers will emerge. And of course, what also emerges when you do it that way is alignment and buy-in mobilization to, to take action. So you know, I've missed some details in terms of how to actually have good meetings when you've got that group together on those topics they've identified. But what comes out the other end is clarity on, you know, the things that need to be done, the complicated things, the simple things that need to be done, things that need to be tried. So again, those are those experiments. 
and um, potentially some kind of lurking additional complexities that you didn't know were there until you got into it. Yeah, I found that part really, really interesting where, you know, getting this group of people together and nope, we're just gonna let you guys make the agenda, but it makes complete sense because if you are the one setting the agenda, you don't know what everybody else cares about. You don't know what direction they want to take things. And this way you're making sure everyone's concerns are going to be addressed. I found that really, really fascinating. Definitely something I'm going to be leveraging as well um, in the future. Yeah. Sorry, if I can just add, when you're talking about that humility of the, of the leader, if there's one thing that you know leaders have struggled with from the beginning that we've been working with them, it's really letting go of the agenda and trusting that what matters is going to come up. And how do I know you know, that they're going to talk about this if I don't tell them they have to talk about this. And we say, no, you're going to be part of the group. You're going to be telling them that you think it's important and you're trying to convince them. And if they agree, then it should be talked about. And if they don't agree, you're going to have to let that go and, you know, follow their lead. It really is a different kind of leadership than a lot of people are used to. Seems like, you know, the more and more I read about leadership and leadership books that this letting go is a huge part of good leadership. What do you think? Well, you know, even if I was ready to debate with you a year ago, right? If we've learned one thing over the course of the last 12 months, it's that leaders need to be like vulnerable, transparent, humble. Nobody knew what to do when this thing landed on us a year ago, right? And I don't think very many people tried to pretend they knew what to do. So you had to kind of, most people just had to shift into a completely different mode of leadership. And it is the mode of leadership that also fits when you're dealing with anything complex, not just a global pandemic. And again, it's to, there's a little bit of need for command and control at the very beginning to let everyone know that don't worry, we're on it. But as you try to figure out like, what does this mean for our customers? What does this mean for our in, internal operations and efficiency? You know, what happens after? How do people work, you know, going forward? Those are all questions nobody's ever answered before. And I don't know anyone, you know, who would be right in thinking that they could figure it out on behalf of their organization. So we've really set the stage for a whole bunch, you know, a new generation of leaders and some transformed leaders to approach complexity with the humility I was talking about, because we've all been humbled. So when it comes to acknowledging the complexity that we have in front of us, is it just a matter of saying to yourself, holy shit, man, this is effing hard, or is there more to it? You know, you can, you can kind of, if you're looking for it, right. And if you're thinking that way, you can ask yourself a few questions that will pretty quickly reveal the difference between something that's complicated and something that's complex. So for example, if you just ask yourself, is there any way that there's a checklist that would like guide me through solving this? Right. A lot of times you'll say, well, no, there's, there's no way couldn't be done. And okay. So we're dealing with something complex. You know, another kind of cutesy way to think about it is if you've got that company that helped you like navigate talent management a year ago, if you ask them to help you again, now that a pandemic is here, would they fix price the project for you? Would, would they be so confident that they know how big the project is going to be? Or would they, you know, instead say, well, we're going to have to go time and materials on this one because there's a lot to figure out. You know, just those kinds of things. Uh, is this is this something? If I think about like this kind of challenge five years ago, is it the same, or you know, is it completely different? And I think you know, just the pace of change these days. Like five years ago, I can't think of anything that's the same in terms of solving like a significant organizational challenge. 
Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. So that's an interesting question, right? If you have, if you're so used to measuring progress via checklist and via some benchmarks and stuff like that, and you're in the realm of complex, like how would you measure progress in, in these types of scenarios? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, that's part of setting up your experiments, right? You, you set objectives, you set measurable things. You say, okay, we're trying to do this. Let's try that. And we'll watch for those indicators as to whether it's working or not. And then even then, I think you have to be attuned to what else you might learn because you may not have anticipated all the positive or negative impact, you know, that, that you know in advance you're going to be measuring. Kind of as we've, I think I've probably had an experience you've had over the last little while, which is just talking to a lot of smart people and, you know, able to learn from them. And there's so many things they're saying about their experiences, business leaders, thought leaders, you know, what they've seen, what they've heard. It, it really is you know, the, the common theme is just the amount of change and that everything has to be rethought and redone. And, um, you know, that this new style of leadership and, and approaching things differently, like, isn't a choice anymore. And we're not going back to normal. And we're on this topic of, you know, knowns and unknowns and nobody knows how things are going to work out. So, you know, every problem, whether complex or complicated, it's going to have its share of knowns unknowns, unknown unknowns. So I'm curious about these, you know, the breaking down these unknowns and breaking down unknown unknowns, right? What are some questions that we can ask ourselves so that we can find a way forward in these types of situations? Yeah, I think the whole point of the unknown unknowns is that they're not even like sufficiently on your radar to ask yourself what you know about them, right? So the unknowns, you know, I don't know how this is going to work or that's going to work. Like they at least have the dimension of something that you understand. You know, you may not understand what's happening to it or what's going to happen to it, but you know it exists. The unknown unknowns, this is again back to requisite variety. You may not be aware of something really important or lurking or, you know, a big opportunity around the corner. There's a much better chance that if you really tap into the variety of talent in and around the organization, somebody's going to bring that to light right so the point of the unknown unknowns is is casting the net wide enough that you're likely to like pick up on it and i think you know this notion of like weak signals in data i think that does get at like i don't know what it means there's something happening over there it's it's weak but it's worth my attention to try to figure it out whether that's an unknown or an unknown unknown i think you'll discover as you try to figure it out, but it may lead you again to something very surprising. Yeah. Something I've been trying to wrap my head around as I'm working through this data strategy, you know, at, at work is, man, there's so much stuff I don't know, but there's so much stuff I don't know that I don't know. How right. am I going to, how am I going to tame this? And it has been, you know, I don't have the, I mean, maybe I do have the requisite variety at work and, and with, with the colleagues, I just haven't reached out to them. But for me, my requisite variety has been just reading books and reading articles and just getting other people's perspectives and things like that. So is that ever a substitute for that requisite variety 
you know, internally in organization, like let's say we are in a situation where we might be a little bit on our own. Can we inject requisite variety into our world in different ways? I, I mean, it doesn't hurt. It certainly doesn't hurt to kind of read what other people's thinking on things, but ultimately like, getting into a conversation is very different from reading. That's why when we talk about requisite variety, you know, in almost any situation, there's kind of the obvious cross section of people who are inside your organization and end users and managers and everyone else who are going to contribute. But then the fun part starts when you really dig into, okay, like if we're going for requisite, the necessary variety, like we need people from the outside, we need perspectives from the outside. Who could that be? What, what might that look like? So, you know, in the example of a data strategy, it might mean going to, you know, completely different industry for just insights from somebody who you've never met before about what they went through on their data journey, right? It might be, uh, you know, not just kind of the end users of the product, but their customers, right? And, and how they would see reflected from, from your customers, you know, the importance of that data, why it matters, what, what they need from it. And just kind of thinking through all dimensions of, of course, demographic diversity. We also talk about personality types and thinking styles. There's a few rare thinking styles that are worth their weight in gold. The, you've probably encountered the person who, who will sit and listen for days, right? And then they'll say one profound thing and everybody will, you know, mouth agape, go, oh my God, that's, that's it. And then there's the storytellers, right? Who are able to like take concepts that are emerging from a bunch of people and just play it back in a way that everybody says, yeah, that's exactly what we've been trying to say. All those different personality types, all the different you know, ways people engage in teams, all their different backgrounds. Every organization has such a rich pool of talent around them. It's just that when it comes to solving complex challenges, they've been trained to go to the consultants. Right, go to go to that pool of talent over there. Outsource the problem over there, because you know everyone's too busy, or my people don't know about innovation, or whatever it is. So one thing I liked um, we talked about it fairly early on in the book is that actually you don't really need to go to consultants. You can work with who you have internally. Um, you just have to be open to it, right? Why do you think yeah. that's such a challenge, like for for organizations? Well, I mean, first of all. I would say that a great wealth of talent for you to draw on in your requisite variety uh, group is that consultant you've been working with on your data strategy or whatever it is, because they've seen a lot of industries you haven't seen. They've got a lot of company industry you haven't, but it, it's not bringing them in for their model. It's not bringing them in to be at the hub of a hub and spoke interview process, right? That's what doesn't work. But you take them and you put them into a group of people and you connect everyone together. Those consultants are far more effective because in the context of a conversation, they know things that, that can just completely change the conversation, move it forward. You know, as long as they're kind of parking their self-interest and engaging as like an equal participant in this really important conversation. And I've seen many consultants who do that very, very well. And I've seen others that can't set aside you know, their desire to sell the next contract or, or whatever, because it's threatening to them. In terms of, you know, why do companies use traditional consulting? It's because it works. It, it takes longer. You get great, very elegant solutions, maybe better than the solution you'll get by applying the formula. And where it breaks down is on implementation and execution, again, because it's their solution. 
and people who haven't been like engaged in and part of the conversation and don't have authorship for the answers have a hard time rallying around those answers on faith that somebody else figured it out. It kind of feels to me like when you are hiring consulting agencies, it's like you're outsourcing requisite variety. Cause I'm sure those consultants have requisite variety on, on their teams when they're working on your problems. Um, so. Yeah, they, they have variety on maybe the challenge that you're dealing with, maybe, um, you know, and that includes other industries and, and so on. But they don't, they don't know a thing about your company, unless they've been in there for a long time, in which case, again, they're very valuable to have as part of your requisite variety group. But they're not doing all the jobs inside your company. They're not dealing directly with the customers every day. They don't have the 25 years of history, what we tried back then. That only comes from, again, like this, um, this organism you put together in your requisite variety group, like the mega mind of all of that, you know, needs to have a lot of local knowledge and stake in order for it to effectively solve anything. And that's why you kind of qualify that as not just variety, it needs to be that requisite type of variety. And earlier in our conversation here, you, you gave us that very I like that concise, precise definition of requisite. I was wondering if you can state that for us again. Yeah, just necessary and sufficient. Necessary and sufficient. Yeah. So again, if I dig into that for one minute, to me, again, I, I come from a math and computer science background. So there's like whenever there's a good puzzle involved, I get interested, right? To satisfy requisite, it's not just like, let's think about everybody we could possibly engage for all that variety. The fun of it is trying to reduce that number down to as small as possible. And, you know, take your 40 people, make it 30 people and still have the same variety represented. And what that means is you're looking for people who have like a variety of experiences themselves, who've worn different hats, played different functions, come from the competitor, you know, been a customer, you know, and they're a millennial and they're a woman and, 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 okay, good. We've checked off five of the uh, qualities we wanted to involve with that one person. And when you get really good at that, you end up with a really interesting mix of people as well. Not just that you've checked all the boxes, but you've now got, you know, really important, really busy, really accomplished, really interesting people augmented with people who've never done this before and are just coming in for the first time new to the job. And it's, it's crazy what you see happen when you, when you get that kind of mix of people working effectively together. I love it. And I just, I love the name of your, your, your company as well. Syntegrity, right? Like it's like, synergy integrity and synergy from regular yeah. variety is that kind of how that that's a that's a stafford beerism again yeah stafford beer synergistic tensegrity bet you didn't see that coming no um yeah so you got the synergy it's the tensegrity which is really interesting it's um so you know stafford beer really studied a lot of different areas of science and he was a contemporary of uh buckminster fuller for example mm. And he was fascinated with Buckminster, Fuller, Buckminster Fuller's work in architecture. And what Fuller was saying, you know who he is, Bucky Balls, right? Yeah. He was talking about how in nature, like after billions of years of evolution, how uh, tension and compression, when they're in balance, they make for very strong structures. So that's tensegrity. It's that balance between tension and compression. So Stafford Beer looked at sort of Fuller's work on geodesic domes and who was proving that architecture could get bigger and stronger at the same time. And he said, well, if that works for architecture, I think that probably makes sense that it should work for people. 
So he designed um, syntegration and this term synergistic tensegrity as a way to get at, you know, effective working in large groups on, on complex challenges. I'm definitely going to be getting some Stafford beer books after this conversation, hopping right on Amazon. What's, what's like the number one book that, you know, myself and the audience that's listening, if they wanted to really benefit from, from his thoughts, what would that book be? You know, I, I think the best way to kind of benefit from his thoughts personally is to, you know, seek out some videos. Uh, I'm not sure what's available on YouTube, but you know, you probably find something he's written books that are more or less not available in print without sort of getting special uh, print printings of them, or you might find them in the library. But he wrote a series about something called the viable systems model, which again, is a, it's a good read about systems and it give you a sense of what systems thinking is all about. But every one of his books, you know, teeters on the brink of being a, a as I said, a textbook. Mm. So you got to have the appetite for that kind of read. Yeah. I mean, all data scientists listening we've we've got that, we've got that appetite uh, but yeah thank you i'll definitely be looking into some of his stuff on on youtube as well uh so we'll talk about one more of the steps which is one of my absolute favorite steps uh just you know because i'm a podcaster and i have to to do this which is constructing questions um but specifically constructing a really really good question so what's the difference between a constructing a good question and asking a question yeah, uh, we talk, we use the word constructing because it's never easy. And like it, that might be something that seems like should be complicated. And I wouldn't go as far as to say it's complex, um, but there's a lot of moving parts in a question and uh, there's a lot you can get wrong. So if you, again, if you remember what I said earlier, that there's not going to be an agenda when you get people together to answer this question, the question has to give them enough clarity of scope and breadth, right? And what we're here to talk about. And you got to do that. The, the art of this is to do that without overly biasing it. And it's very easy to accidentally put bias into your question. So, you know, no bias. We talk about the need for a call to action. Like it should be action oriented. What must we do? What can we do? What should we do? You know, and is it can, should, or will, you know, that's, that's one of those moving parts to figure out. Really important is that it contains an aspirational goal. And, you know, there's even delicacy there because you want it to be aspirational. You want it to inspire people. You don't want it to turn them off. And it's very easy to set the bar too high where people go, okay, well, we can't do that. What are you, what are you asking a stupid question for, you know, or to set it too low. And that's actually the more common mistake where you think you're being aspirational. You're giving a group, you know, a number like a $1.2 billion revenue target. And everybody knows we can hit 1.2 billion in our sleep. Only this guy who's asking the question doesn't know that. And then you don't get any new thinking, right? So it's, you got to get it, you know, aspirational enough that people are going to think differently about it. And, and so, you know, we almost never get to the question in a first attempt. We'll, we'll work it with someone. They'll, you know, say, okay, that feels pretty good. Let me go, let me go think about the time frame because that's another element. Is it 18 months? Is it starting now? Is it starting next month? Right. And then we iterate through that a few times until, until finally we get it right. And the more people who are involved in that, again, you run the risk that, you know, you go from having a really good question to a question that's been like watered down to something people are comfortable with. One of the things we say is if, if the question's comfortable, it's the wrong question. You want to kind of agitate people a little bit with your question. And so you talk about these rules of Q 
in in the book as well and and how these rules help to make you know a question really really good and you might have just touched on those right now but i was wondering if you can break that down for the audience yeah so one of them is what i just said that if it's you know if it's uncomfortable it's good and if it's if it's kind of soothing to read the question then you've got the wrong question another interesting one which again took kind of years of realization is that you know a lot of times we'll be in a situation where where the company we're working with is saying, look, you know, we got this HR thing and culture thing, and we're kind of trying to figure out, like, do we frame the question around that or do we frame the question around strategy and then we'll get to the culture question or, you know, maybe it should be about safety, you know, which kind of branches into the other things. And I'm recounting like a real conversation we were in. And it turns out, you know, it's complexity. It's all one pool. If you think about a swimming pool, it's all one pool. And each of those different ways of jumping into the pool, those are different decks, right? But wherever you jump from, you're going to end up in the same pool. And what that means is when you ask the question about talent, you're going to end up talking about corporate strategy. And if you ask the question about corporate strategy, you're going to end up on talent and everything else that matters. And it's, you know, complexity is interconnected, entwined. It's all about disentangling things that, you know, have connections. Same reason, same, you know, wherever you start, you're going to get to the same issue. So that's what that rule of Q is about. Uh, I can't remember offhand what the third one was. If it comes back to me, I'll mention it. Yeah, no worries. Um, So we're talking a little bit about, you know, how we ask questions. And sometimes we can bake in faulty assumptions in the way that we ask questions. So how is that? How do faulty assumptions make us ask bad questions? I, again, an example is one I sort of just gave you, which is when you set the bar too low on your aspirational goal, you got a lot of personal bias and you're making assumptions yourself as you kind of think about what is, what is the right target to set. So uh, something like that, I would say you got to go consult a few people and, and kind of finesse where you, where you land that number. You can also be making assumptions about who the we is. So like, you know, what must we do? If you're dealing with, you know, bank XYZ, you could say, what must bank XYZ do? Sorry for the Canadianism, but I'm talking to somebody in Winnipeg. But maybe the question is, what must we do? Because it's not just the bank people in the room, it's their ecosystem, right? So maybe we should say we, like, so again, from a personal perspective, without giving much thought, your bias about numbers, about deadlines, uh, sometimes you're baking into a question some constraints because that's necessary. What do we have to do to grow the business by, you know, 400% over the next five years while continuing to be a great place to work? Right. That's a that's probably a good constraint. It adds nice tension to it. But we've had questions where, you know, a, a hardware company was saying, you know, what do we have to do to protect our legacy business while we embark on these on these new things for our customers? Well, that's an assumption that it's worth protecting the legacy business. And again, you know, nobody who asked that question would necessarily think, well, I'm really biasing it with my assumption. Because that's their lens, right? Is that we've got to protect the legacy business. So, you know, this is something that's better done in teams, just not too many people that you end up kind of watering everything down to the, is it lowest common denominator or highest common factory? <laughs> it's one or the other. You don't want that to happen. So speaking of teams, like you're, we're talking about this a little bit earlier about, you know, we need to get people together. And, you know, one of the, the 10 steps is 
getting a bunch of people actually physically in the same location. And we know that's definitely hard nowadays with our pandemic situation. You talked about how it's actually working out to, to be pretty, pretty good. You know, why is that? Why is it that when we are having these face-to-face types of interactions and discussions that we're able to crack complexity? Yeah. I mean, we, we always observe firsthand that there was something really magical that happens when you get people together. And it's, it's not just together in the room, you know, for conversations. It's also when they go to the snack table after a meeting, right? A lot of stuff happens there when they hit the bar at night and when everybody kind of like has an overnight to think about things, come back the next morning with new ways of thinking. Those are all real benefits. Don't get me wrong. But what I've personally learned, again, a lot of what we do is facilitating meetings and I've always really relied on the body language in the room and the facial expressions and, and everything else. And you can pick up a lot of things, but I've been really surprised when you're doing a zoom meeting, there's, there's a lot of cues you can pick up on. They're just not necessarily the same cues you're used to. So for example, you've probably been in conversations where you see someone like coming off of mute, going back on mute, coming off mute, going back on mute, you know, they're trying to get in and they might be getting frustrated. Right. Or you see people who like unmuted three minutes ago and haven't had a chance to say anything. Those are the kinds of things you can pick up on. And of course, you know, their, their facial expression, what you can't see is whether they're wearing pajama bottoms, you know, work pants or jeans. But I I don't think a lot of signals are are coming from those parts of your body. It's mostly what's on screen and, and you can still see those things through zoom, through teams, WebEx, whatever platforms you're working on some better than others. It's really interesting. I never considered that, that what you just mentioned, like, you know, if somebody is, is muting on, off, on, off, or they've been unmuted for quite some time, that's telling us something that we should probably pause and see if they want to say something. Does it, like, in your experience with how things have been this year, does it matter if it's cameras on, cameras off? Like, does that have an effect on, on anything when we're working together? Yeah, you know what? Cameras on, if you can. But there's all sorts of practical advice that we put into the book, you know, and some of it's not our advice. So this notion of two pizza teams, I don't know if you've heard it before. Yeah, from Amazon. Um, yeah, exactly. So this notion that you can't have a productive conversation in a group that's too large to share two large pizzas. Completely true. It's, you know, we've always known that it's always been sort of this range of six to eight people can have a good productive conversation. Same is true, you know, in, in this world. And some of the techniques we use to break down a group of, let's say, 12 people into eight people having a conversation is you divide them into members and critics. So eight members having a conversation. And what we've been doing in the digital world, which is really effective, is we have the critics go off camera. And then in Zoom, for example, you can say, hi, non-video participants. They disappear completely. So the members can have a conversation and they forget the critics are there. And so this critic role, it's all about people who are listening to the conversation, then at intermittent moments coming in and offering feedback to the team. Well, now it's really powerful because these members are losing themselves in a conversation. Suddenly these other faces are appearing on the screen to tell them that this person has been dominating and that you're spinning your wheels and here's something to talk about that you haven't talked about. It has a, has a lot of impact. And, and so in some ways, right, the, the fact that we're stuck behind this technology right now has, has improved some of the experiences of executing on the formula. That's some really, really good advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. Some excellent tips. So I'm curious, is cracking complexity, is, is it an art or a science? 
That's a good question. I mean, because of what I was saying before, this this is a formula. So there's science here for sure. You know, as we kind of talk about the personality of our brand and our company and the people who, who've been doing what we do for clients in the real world and helping them solve big challenges, there's this level of mastery of the formula, which I think does make it an art. As you said, like it's a formula, so it's scientific. But as you get into each step, there's an art to landing a good question. There's an art to requisite variety. And just, you know, you know it when you watch it happening, when that one additional person who you got pushed back on, when that person is starting to like change things, you, you feel, I think, the glee of an artist, right? You know, and throughout, as you, as you kind of run meetings for people, it's not like just anyone could watch a Zoom screen and pick up what I was saying before, but the people who've mastered facilitation in the real world, sorry, real world, they can master facilitation here and they'll pick up on things that others don't see, right? So there is mastery, there's artistry in what we do. I think if I were to take one thing in the formula though and say it's very, very much like art, it's this notion of emergence. It's this faith that, you know, the world is a place that magically serves things up to you at just the right time if you created the conditions for something to emerge. You know, and that's what artists do. Artists, you know, they, they don't know what they're going to create necessarily ahead of time. They allow themselves to be stimulated by what they're seeing and what they're observing and what's going through their head. And, you know, maybe they don't know what they're creating until they're finished creating it. And that's kind of the notion of, of dealing with complexities. You don't know what it's going to look like at the end. You don't have a picture on the front of the box that you can refer to as you kind of put this puzzle together. But when you start to see the image, right, you feel like you're in the domain of art, not science. Absolutely love that. I, I like that chapter on emergence as well. He kind of opened it um, talking about serendipity. And I, I absolutely love that. I interviewed a uh, author, Dr. Christian Bush, wrote the book, The Serendipity Mindset. And uh, it's fascinating, but one of my favorite ones from uh, 2020 that I read. So talk to us about the the role of serendipity. I know you touched on it just now a little bit, but if you get to spell it out for us, like how do we create serendipity when we're working on, you know, complex problems and maybe when we're working isolated from people? Yeah. And it seems like such a, a conflict to be able to, you know, to say we engineer serendipity because serendipity is like happenstance, lucky accidents, happy accidents. And, you know, if you think about the design of, innovation centers and, uh, you know, companies that are trying to be more innovative, you know, a lot of it is setting up these spaces where, where the doctor might bump into the engineer and have a conversation over snacks that triggers something amazing for one or both of them, right? Those are kind of happy accidents. And so, you know, there, there is progress, I, I think, in companies recognizing that those kinds of spaces create spaces where good accidents can happen. But when you're engineering serendipity, you go beyond that. Right. You um, create by, you know, by design situations where many people with a lot of different perspectives who could benefit from interacting with each other can collide and you do it repeatedly. Right. So, again, it's this stack that's in the formula. It's the collisions. It's the iteration. It's the requisite variety of people. You create the conditions where you are through tens of thousands of collisions far more likely to have that happy accidental collision, you know, happen. And it may not. All you can do is, you know, get 30,000 and hope that one really triggers. And, and usually 
people will reflect after they've been through the formula just on it was the fact that we got everyone together and that I had a chance to understand what that person was doing and apply that to my work and then play it out. And this person picked up on that and reshaped it. It's that collision between people and that flow of information and data. None of it accidental, but you know, if it creates something magic, you can call that an accident or you can call that an engineered accident. I like that. I like that, that concept of kind of remixing, right? Taking somebody's approach and remixing that with their own and, and making something new happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've always thought, for example, I haven't had a chance to do this. You know, it'd be great to get like all the personalities from a cold case from 15 years ago back together in a conversation about it and just retro. And, and I think not through interviews with one detective, but everyone talking to each other what you might trigger in terms of like a few pieces coming together that didn't have a chance to come together back then. I think you might have a Netflix special on your hands there. If you, if you try that hard enough, my true crime has been coming up on Netflix, like a lot. So yeah, yeah, you got some, I'll keep an eye out for that one. <laughs> so last formal question before we jump into a real quick random round here, it's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, it's actually a really easy question. I mean, I want to be remembered for my family, for my daughters and, you know, their descendants. And, you know, maybe that's not what you're asking, but I would like to have some amazing people, right, on the tips of my uh, my family tree, just like changing the world and, and um, taking everything that I've thought and believed and just, you know, blowing it out into wonderful, glorious things. That would be great. I would like to be remembered it's funny you're asking because I'm going through like a whole ancestry thing right now. While we've been in COVID, I've been playing with the family tree, trying to get back as far as I can. And there's so little information about people, right? I, I would want people to know that I was a good person. They, I, I want them to know how funny I am. And uh, I want to be remembered, you know, by people who like are directly related to me as that kind of person. And I think the book, you, you know, is only the first of what I hope are many books. I want the personality and the sense of humor and everything else to be like in the pages of those books so that even the strangers can say, you know, that guy sounded really interesting. I, I absolutely dig it and definitely sounded interesting. That's why I was like, dude, I got to reach out to this guy. Got to bring him on. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, you know, I, I'm a new father. Uh, my son's about 10 months old now. That's something I've been thinking about a lot. It's like, like this ancestry thing. Cause when I think back, you know, I've met, my great grandparents, one of them, two of them actually, but beyond that, I don't know, know anything. Right. It's just yeah. interesting to think about it. And like, I'm, I'm 38, right. So I'm 38, have my first kid. So by the time my kid's my age, I'm going to be 76. That's pretty damn old. I don't got that much time left. And if he's, if he's anything like me, just waiting forever to have kids, then, you know, I don't know if I'll see my, my grandkids. <laughs> right. yeah, it's just weird thinking about that when you start thinking, I, I didn't think about this shit until I was like a father. So that's, <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, I like that. I like that, you know, have the tips of the family tree doing some awesome stuff. Like, yeah, I, exactly. I think that. Wouldn't that be great right? yeah. like, to be able to look down and say, oh my God, like I did that. Yeah. And that's one of the powerful things about this ancestry. Like if you, if you go back several generations, they start to show you statistics about how many people are descended from that couple. Mm -hmm. It's in the hundreds, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's crazy to think about. And, um, you know, and, and as, as you're parenting your 10 month year old, 10 month old, sorry, you're going to be passing a lot of things to that person that they're going to remember for a lifetime. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you're going to shape who they are. So 
yeah, you start thinking that way now. What are the values you want to pass on? Who do you want them to be, right? Do you have a chance to really influence those those leafs, you know, yeah. that won't appear for a hundred years? That's why I really started really writing in journals a lot more recently because of that. Not just journals jump dump my brain out, but just journals, like you know, when I'm reflecting on on stuff and trying to pass down wisdom. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's, seriously. it's not too late for me to give you this advice. I did this with my I, I've got a third daughter who's much younger than the first two. And every year on her birthday, I like in my blog, I, I write her a le- long letter just about who she is this year, what happened to her this year, you know, how, how she grew and everything else. So I've got this bank. She's turning 12 this year. I've got this bank of letters I've written her every year. And it's a, I think it's a really important capture that she'll probably treasure forever. Right. Yeah. I like that a lot. I'm yeah. take that idea. Yeah. Please do. So let's jump into a quick uh, random round here. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds when they meet you for the first time? I I think I come across as like intense and aloof. You know, if you walked into like a University of Waterloo lecture hall in my first couple of years, if there were two empty seats in the hall, they were on the other side of me. And it wasn't hygiene. It's uh, I I carry an air without me. I've never been able to quite put my finger on. So I chalk it up to being kind of intense. That's interesting. Intense and aloof. Like, uh, to me, that sounds like two opposite. I, I don't mean to be. It's yeah. just, I, I think I carry that with me. Do you think you have to achieve something in order to be worth something? I mean, it depends on what you mean by achieve something. I, I think uh, to be, to be worth something, you, you know, you need to recognize what the value is that you carry and how best to bring that value to the world, right? So it's not necessarily through achievements. You might, you know, your your greatest value might be as a really good listener, right? And that can be tremendously valuable and, and a rare skill, but the difference you can make to someone who needs that is enormous. So I'm taking achieve as a very specific word and I'd say, no, I mean, if, if that's what you bring, if that's the value you bring, it's well worth getting to know you. I like that. What are you currently reading? I am reading the prequel to, what's it called? The Ken Follett uh, Cathedral series. I'm trying to remember the name. I think I wrote it down. It's the the evening and the morning. So I don't know if you've read Ken Follett. He did Pillars of the Earth. Then he did three that took place later on during the Black Plagues. Pillars of the Earth is about building the great cathedrals of Europe. Mm-hmm. And as dull as that sounds, it's, it's an amazing, you know, he's an amazing storyteller. So this is the prequel. And I also, I had to write this down. I'm also reading some science fiction right now uh, called the collapsing empire by John Scalzi. I don't know why it ended up on my Kindle, but it did. And I'm really enjoying it. So one thing I need to work on is getting more fiction into my my reading diet. Cause I don't think I have enough of that. Like the fiction I am reading right now is it's the unicorn project, which is a fiction about my day-to-day life, which is just weird. But <laughs> Yeah. I, you know, it's funny, historical fiction, as it turns out, like I'm fascinated by it and I hated history in school. Yeah. And, but when, when they tell you about Genghis Khan, like in a historical fiction, all it's like, these are great stories. So there's a lot of learning to do in fiction. Yeah. Fiction. Yeah. I've got one historical fiction that I've been meaning to read. Um, Stephen Pressfield was my, one of my favorite authors. I know him more for his nonfiction works, but he's did a 
a book called The Virtues of War, which is about Alexander the Great and mm-hmm. it's a historical uh, fiction. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what song do you have on repeat? Well, the closest to an accurate answer to that is probably the song that gets played most. Um, the thing is, I share my phone with my 11-year-old in term, when it comes to music in the car and everything else, right? So we actually, every year, we, we cut a playlist that, uh, that represents the songs that we have in common in terms of uh. things we both like. So the thing that I think has endured is, uh, you know, Macklemore, Downtown, uh-huh, nice. Or, um, you know, the good old days, another Macklemore. Just, uh, uh, again, for whatever reason, that's like in that Venn diagram overlap of our music tastes. <laughs> right on, yeah. Check that one out. Uh, so I'm going to pull up the random question generator. We'll do, oh, uh, here we go. do a couple from here. And first one, what's the story behind one of your scars? Um, I don't have many scars, frankly. Uh, I had a pretty trouble-free childhood, and my dad would say that's because I was a coward. (laughs) So I've got a scar on my right ankle that came from awkwardly jumping over a sprinkler as a child at a party when I landed on the sprinkler and cut my foot. So how's that for, like, unexciting? Yeah, I know at least like three kids growing up that had cut their foot on sprinklers. It's very, very common. One of those hazards you don't think about, right? What is one of the greatest values that guides your life? You know, this comes from my father. I think uh, people are good. And I like to walk around with the assumption that somebody I'm meeting is a good person, even like at the risk of being taken advantage of by people who aren't. I'd rather have like this default understanding that people are good. The last year really challenged that for me. And and I found myself shaking a little bit as like, there was so many like nasty things going on, particularly Mm -hmm. south of the border. Yeah. But, you know, I'd say it's still important to me to, to, to feel that way and to pass that on to my kids. I'd like that. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? we just did this as a family. We've been doing family calls and we have like different questions. And that, that was one of the questions and I'm trying to remember. Oh, I think, uh, you know, the, the immediate healing, the regenerative, yeah. you know, ability, everything else doesn't matter if there's a kryptonite that can take you down, but if you can like regenerate, then, you know, go ahead do whatever you want. You're going to, you're going to recover in the end. You can also live forever if you always regenerate. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And then I can tell my, you know, the tips of my tree all about me. Yeah. yeah. Enough already, old man. So how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? I am ComplexityDB at, uh, on Twitter and David Benjamin on LinkedIn. Our website is SyntegrityGroup.com. Not SynergisticTensegrity.com, but Syntegrity.com. And, uh, you know, David Kamlos and I, and David's the co-author of Cracking Complexity, so I'll mention that. We've been writing very, very frequently in Forbes. So if you just go, you know, search for us in Forbes, you'll see a lot of interesting articles on some of the things that we talked about today. Right on. I'll be sure to, to link to all of those right there in the show notes. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. You guys got to pick up Cracking Complexity, one hell of a book. I really enjoyed it. I know you guys will as well. David, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. Oh, no problem. Always enjoy this kind of thing. 